0: Welcome to the Friday Q&A. This is where you come to learn to think biblically about everything. At least that's our lofty agenda. That's our hope and our goal, at least to get better at it all the time. Thinking biblically, processing every question, every life situation through the lens of God's holy word, like the things he's He's communicated to us and told us. It goes far beyond just teaching us salvation. Uh, not, that, not that that's a just, that's more than a just, but but also giving us incredible wisdom in life and clarity for difficult issues. And so um, to maybe not provide entire clarity on the first question for today, I, I don't think I'm capable of doing that. That's my limitations, not the Bible's. But giving some answers to the recklessness through which some have been quoting scripture on the topic of student loan forgiveness. Now, I'm not really a political guy. I don't have super strong opinions about a lot of these things. But here's the question from today, and I will answer it with as much clarity as I can provide. Question one comes from Desiree Johnson, who asks, Is it biblical for a Christian to file for student loan forgiveness? I attended college in my 20s, and I racked up 20000 in student loans. The balance is currently at 16000 Biden's student loan forgiveness plan would really help, but I would be taking the easy way out when I'm able-bodied to pay off the remainder of, over time myself. Um, she says, excuse me, not I would, but would I be taking the easy way out, which is since she's able-bodied, able-bodied to pay it off herself, would it be selfish and irresponsible or a blessing to accept the aid? Now, Desiree's question is not about whether student loan forgiveness or, you know, canceling student loans is actually a good thing or a bad thing. Her question is really about whether she should apply for it since it's been put into action. It's rolling into action right now as I speak at the time we're doing this video. Um, should she apply for it? And to me, that's an easier question than the other question of whether or not it's biblical or right in the first place. That's a much more complicated one. I'm going to talk a little little bit about both, mostly because I want to rescue some scripture verses from being abused in this conversation, not because I actually know. I'm not really entirely sure of, of what the right answer is in full here. Um, so there are some who are going to hear me you know, say that, and they're going to think, oh, Mike's sitting on the fence for some tactic-type reason because he doesn't want to offend someone. So it's like, no, you're just lying about me in your head. <laughs> I'm being honest with you. I really don't know entirely if I have a clear answer on this, but I do think that I would lean to, against the idea of student loans based on my understanding of Scripture, but not entirely. And here, let me explain why, and then I'll answer Desiree's question and I'm gonna do a very brief overview. Okay, so some of the verses that have been thrown around, the Bible verses that I've seen thrown around online on the topic of student loans, it's like all of a sudden, people who never quote the Bible, they, they're really interested in quoting the Bible to support their view. Um, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, I won't read the whole thing, but many of you know it, it's the parable of the unforgiving like debtor. This guy that owes money, he's forgiven a great sum, he goes to his, his fellow who owes him a little bit of money, and he won't forgive that man, and so then, Jesus uses this as an analogy for a person who won't forgive others after they've been forgiven. Um, This is not about loan forgiveness, actually. It's a parable using, yes, it's loan forgiveness, but using loan forgiveness or debt forgiveness. Actually, um, not even forgiveness because the guy, he not only didn't forgive the debt, he wouldn't give the guy more time to pay it off, just a delay. Um, But that's just an analogy Jesus is using to talk about actual forgiveness of moral crimes against God and against each other. So the problem with stretching this parable and putting it over actual loan forgiveness is you're taking the illustration Jesus gave and you're making it the point Jesus made. And we shouldn't do this with the parables. Let me give you an example. When Jesus talks about uh, farmers' parables... Do we think that his he's in offering instructions on how to sow? Like the sower goes out sowing, and he throws some of the seed on the on on the on the road on the dry packed road. Does that mean that all farmers should throw seed on dry packed road? It's like well, obviously not. Jesus is using an analogy to draw a point about the kingdom of God. I just think we're stretching the parable too much. Um, the debtor was unforgiving after he had been forgiven. That's the main point of the parable. It's not about modern American loan forgiveness. Like that's just twisting scripture. Um, there's also, these are another verse four, the whole loan forgiveness thing that people are using is the year of Jubilee. Um, this is where people selectively grab the Old Testament and they use concepts in the Bible where they don't care about the context. They just care about how useful it feels to them in the moment. And so this year of Jubilee thing Is basically every 50 years, you know, after the 49 year mark, they would seven years of seven years. Anyway, the point is every 50 years, approximately, the Israelites would get all their land back and all of the um, outstanding debts and stuff like that would be canceled. That's actually true. Like, that's a pretty neat thing. And every seven years, they had like a miniature version of this as well um here's a few problems though with applying this to modern day loan forgiveness is that it's an entirely different scenario because the government's not putting in place the idea of hey every 50 years we're going to end loans and so if you have a loan longer than 50 year term then it's just going to end like period or something like that. that that's not what's happening here instead this is just being um like it, it's, it's coming in and interrupting what was intended to be a 40-year loan, or 20-year loan, a 30-year loan, a 10-year loan, loan, and just cutting it off however old it is. A year, five, 10 years, doesn't matter. It's just a different scenario is the point. Also, the year of Jubilee was only for Jews. Only for Jews. So this would be saying that we can only do this for certain people groups or maybe just for Americans, um, but we're not going to be offering the same kind of liberties to others who are not... Citizens that's interesting that that, that's how you'd have to apply it to be consistent But here's probably the biggest issue is they knew it was coming Um, When you took out a loan in ancient Israel and they had a 50-year jubilee and you knew it was 10 years till the jubilee The conditions of the loan would be that it was a 10-year loan because they all knew at at that point it was going to end So it wasn't as though the lender says whoa All of a sudden, halfway through your loan payments, it all just gets dissolved. Like, that's just a different scenario. We shouldn't say it applies. This doesn't refute loan forgiveness. It's just saying, I'm just saying it's not the same thing. Another one is the gospel itself. Uh, Didn't God distribute your, your debt and my debt and the masses of other people's debts to Jesus Christ who took our debt to the cross? And the answer is like, absolutely, he did that. Is that what loan forgiveness is? And I think that's where the parallel breaks down. Because loan forgiveness is taking the not all the debts of Americans, but the specific debts of certain certain kinds of debts of certain kinds of Americans, and distributing the payment of those debts to all other Americans. Right, that's a very different scenario. Here, the the as I understand it, the the president is taking unilateral action so it's not we're not voting on this it's it'd be different actually think of it this way if america collectively voted a significant majority voted hey we just want to pay off the 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 loan debts of uh, student loans then i'd be like okay well that's actually a lot more like that whole jesus thing because it's a voluntary debt paying but this is different this is one man unilaterally taking action to to you know pay off the debt of others using the funds of people who haven't offered to do that so this is Different it's very different than the example of the gospel Um, So we should just recognize that and because the government doesn't have money and we have this vision of like the forgive me guys I'm just speaking. I hope I don't make a mistake here But I think this is all true. The government doesn't have its own money It has your money it has the taxpayers money or it has a printing press And so whatever it does has to come from one of those things it either or a third case is it borrows money from somewhere else So the government either spends taxpayers money So, in in which case, it's taxpayers are going to pay for the student loans of others. Okay, we're distributing the the debt. We're spreading their debt out to a bunch of other people. That's obviously not kind of a gospel example. Or they print money, in which case we have concerns about things like inflation, which we're obviously experiencing to a significant degree at the moment. Or they borrow money from others, in which case they're just, the government's taking on your debt. And then that goes back to, you have to either print it or get it from the taxpayers. So like this is just it's just this isn't one thing's not the other another example um is uh let me see oh I could go over several but I'm just going to give you one more uh, deuteronomy 15 well I'll put this one up on on scripture on the screen for you guys okay on this one it says at the end of every 7 years you shall grant a release remember this is like the mini jubilee the 7 year sabbath and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. That's right. There, there There's a, there's like a, a debt forgiveness that happens. Although, keep in mind, it's planned out ahead of time. So, the, if, if you knew you were two years away from the seven-year mark, you would have just done a two-year lease. That, that would have been the plan ahead of time. It wouldn't have been a sudden change after the fact. He shall not exact... It of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. God, God's blessing the people. This is for Israel. This is not for all nations, but still, we can learn from it. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. Well, that's interesting. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. So debt forgiveness in this case, if you want to say the Bible's my model and use the seven-year Sabbath cycle, then what you're going to have to do is say, not foreigners, If you're not a citizen of the U.S., I offer you no debt forgiveness. Because what you're doing is you're recklessly ripping something out of Scripture and throwing it into a new context with no consideration for what God actually intended originally or how it really applies. But then there's verse 4, and this is what everybody who's for... And I'm not even saying I'm opposed to loan forgiveness. I just want to recognize it for what it is. Um, But everybody who's for loan forgiveness would be bothered by verse 4, I imagine. But there will be no poor among you... For the Lord will bless you in the land of the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Um, oh, wait, is that the verse I wanted to say? I guess it's verse three and four. Uh, if you only will strictly obey the voice, the voice of the Lord your God. So you've got this idea of, um, here, here's a principle we can apply. Biblically speaking, lending and interest tend to lead to poverty when they're not done very carefully or in the case of israel you just couldn't charge interest at all of citizens of israel i guess it was the exodus passage i was exodus 22 is the one i was thinking of just now exodus 22 verses 25 through 27 talks about this You, you could you could if you were israelite under the law you could charge interest of strangers but not of native israelites you couldn't charge them interest because interest might lead them into slavery you had to release them every seven years because their debts might lead them into slavery it was the slavery issue that god was primarily avoiding with these topics he didn't want them to be stuck into poverty poor among them who are forever perpetually poor this was the thing that god was avoiding i believe so the verses that are used for loan forgiveness definitely speak against using money to oppress the poor using interest to oppress the poor and having generational debt amongst amongst the people of israel and there is some application for us today is that the same as student loan debt forgiveness? I don't think so. I think that this seems like a disconnect. The two things seem different. Not that there aren't some people, right? But not the majority of those with student loans probably aren't in that category. Um, but then the verses people use against it and they go, ah, so the Bible's against this thing. Um, um, well, Psalm 37, 21 says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous gives is generous and gives. It's true the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but that's not really an argument against loan forgiveness because loan forgiveness, at least if it's done with with morality and done with a willing heart on the part of the person who who owes who uh, owns the the uh, the payment. What do you what do you call that person? The debtor, <laughs> the the debtor who you owe the money to. If they're willing to give you, they're not making you wicked because you're not paying back. Verse twenty one of of Psalm thirty seven is saying, if you borrow money. And then you choose not to pay it back, have no intention of paying it back. That's wicked. But if you're in dire straits through famine, through other, other causes of poverty, and the person who loans you the money just forgives you the debt, that's not bad. In fact, that's what the righteous is doing. The righteous is generous and gives. Right. So th- this isn't really about loan forgiveness. It is about taking loans without intending to pay them off. And there may be a connection there for whether or not you apply for the loan forgiveness. All right, so Romans 13 is the next one. Verse 7 and 8. These are verses people are throwing around. Pay to all what is owed. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The examples, of course, are taxes and revenue. Um, but the uh, the application to a loan would apply. A general rule of thumb is if you or me take out a loan, you pay that loan. You've made a promise, you made a commitment, you took someone else's money to spend it for your own purposes, and you do owe them the money back, potentially plus interest. Um, even if sometimes it may be wrong to charge interest or large amounts of interest to certain people in certain situations, it doesn't change the fact that I've like committed to make that payment. So I should pay to all what is owed. That is a general rule. It, I shouldn't be quick to jump on ditching my 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 commitments that's an integrity issue that is a godliness issue um but let's say that let's say on the other hand you're somebody who through whatever reasons like you have these student loan debts you thought you would get better jobs they haven't been available you haven't been able to make the money you're really struggling struggling just to pay rent on your way too small janky apartment that you live in you you can't afford a car you take the bus everywhere you go it's just enough for you to try to buy food for your kids and you feel like you can't even buy healthy food for them that's higher quality so they can grow strong and good and you have this student loan hanging over your head i'm like okay i want that person to receive some aid and some help whether whether it's student loan related or whatever like they're obviously in a really hard situation and you know even in ancient israel here's something that does apply they did have different things in place to help those who are in extreme poverty. This seems like a healthy thing. Is it? Is the student loan thing doing that though? That's the question and I'm not sure that it's the best efficient way to do that. Ecclesiastes 5.5. 5. And you guys feel free to disagree with me. Uh, the main thing I want you to get out of this is not that you agree with my my conclusions on student loan debt, I, I don't care. It's more that you get better at saying, hey, the scripture's not even about that. Like That's what you gotta get better at because the world around us, including the Christian world around us, often uses the Bible selectively to prove a point the Bible isn't talking about. And we want to be noticing that lest we become abusers of the scripture ourselves. So Ecclesiastes five five it says, It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. That's actually true. But the application there is to not be quick to make promises that you might not keep. Some people go, I promise, I promise. They say, I promise too quickly. That's actually kind of what that's about. Um... Yeah, so I I just think that that has a a looser connection to the issue at hand. Not none, but it's looser. I think the general rule, biblically speaking, is when you borrow money, you need to pay it back, and it's a major integrity issue if you don't. When there's an offer of debt forgiveness on the table, like there is right now, um, you need to ask a question of whether or not there's need. And this is exactly what Desiree's question is all about. She's like, I feel like I could pay this off on my own. This is my understanding of Desiree's question. I could pay this off on my own, I just, it's just gonna take time, it'd just be nice for me, it would be convenient for me, it would be helpful for me if I just had it all paid off ahead of time, um, you know, or at least a significant chunk paid off by the government. I think that, Desiree, if I was in your situation, I would be compelled by these things, that when poverty or slavery, which are very much similar things in the Old Testament, when poverty and slavery are are, are not the things that, like, let me, let me re- restate it this way, if you're standing on the edge of, of poverty, if these loans don't get paid off, then I think maybe you should apply for the student loan aid, the, the loan forgiveness. If you're not standing on the edge of poverty, if you're like, no, life's a bit of a struggle, but I can make this, I can pay off my debts, then it seems like it would, it would be the moral thing to do to pay what you owe, lest you become the oppressor of others. Now, how does that work? How do you oppress others? Um, I think it's because of the the results of like inflation, uh, the, the in- continued increase here's some of the other issues, continue to increase uh, the harm of our broken college system and stuff like that. The, the drives up college prices more, the more aid, government aid is provided and the more student forgiveness is provided, the more college prices just go up. So there's a snowball effect. You know, it it, give, it gave me a $10,000 help, but I added to the bucket of the snowballing bad economy that we have going on. So I, I'm affecting others. Is my need so great? that it's worth contributing to that negative effect that it's it's having on others. I think that that's a good question to ask. And um, there's other things we could debate about, like why, why is it that apparently when you file for bankruptcy, it's really hard to get your student loans wiped out? That's weird to me, because that would be like the number one reason when you do want that kind of forgiveness to take place. If someone files for bankruptcy, like legitimate bankruptcy, why do they still have their student loans hanging over their head? More often than not, apparently it's a rare thing. That's that would be to me more of an important law to, to adjust. So I lean on saying that um, uh, you may technically qualify for the student loans, but as a Christian who wants to honor Scripture and honor Christ and owe no man anything and to pay off what I owe and not hurt others with the debt I put the debt I incurred, which I put on them, um, I want to pay it off if I can on my own. But if I'm standing on the edge of poverty, if I'm standing on the edge of like, like great economic distress in my life, then maybe that's the time to reach out because that's exactly what that kind of help is for. All right, let's go to question... And by the way, you guys may disagree with me. You're welcome to disagree with me on this topic. At least add this, if you disagree with me on that. Add what you thought about the way I handled scripture because that's actually what I'm most interested in. Are we handling scripture right? Number two, number two. Michael Slattery says... Through 1 Corinthians 8, three, we know that whoever loves God is known by him. Thus, would you agree that Jesus saying, I never knew you, in Matthew 7, is the equivalent of him saying, you never loved me? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, let's look at those two verses together. And I have not thought of this before, so you're going to get just kind of my initial thinking. Sometimes even after stream, I'll be like thinking things through and go, Oh, I would, I would answer that differently a little bit if I have more time. I... That's the nature of a live stream. First Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, let's back up a little bit for some context. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is, it's actually really beautiful the way this is written. Um, knowledge puffs up. You know, you think you have this sort of theological knowledge. This is a temptation for those of us, like people who are more inclined to listen to my content, for me, myself as well, to become um, egotistical because we have knowledge about theology and about doctrine. But Paul shifts to the the sort of the better knowledge, the, the best knowledge, which is the knowledge of God. And so look how he uses the word knowledge. Yeah, all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up. But love, love is always good. Love doesn't have this downside. It just builds up. It's a good thing. Um, yeah, and if you imagine that you know something, you don't know it as you ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. And that's the ultimate knowing. So if you love God, you're known by God. I think Paul's just trying to shift us from the perspective of uh, theological debates. Um, and I should be careful here because I think that theological debates are actually comprised a lot of the New Testament documents themselves. There are a lot of theological debates. Like God's not opposed to theological debates. I shouldn't put it that way. He's trying to, I guess, prevent us from thinking that the theological debates are the whole discussion. Like after you've debated the theology and you've figured out the right views, then you're done. No, no, no. That's not right. That knowledge without love and the love of God is a huge issue. So, if anyone loves God, He's known by God. So, um, the uh, the verse then that you brought up to pair with that is Matthew 7, where Jesus says, I never knew you. Okay, so let's um, not everyone who says to me, here's Matthew 7 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, yeah, we were there, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the important thing here, I think, for this context is Jesus says, I never knew you to people who called him Lord. And they did works in his name. And he's like, I never knew you, which implies this does imply. At, at, the, at every stage of the things they were doing as they were doing Christian ministry or ministry in the name of Jesus, they did not know Jesus truly. So that, that does seem to apply. Now we've, we've looked at both separately. Your question is how they work together. Um, so would I agree that Jesus saying I never knew you in Matthew 7 is the equivalent of him saying you never loved me? I don't know if it's the equivalent. I don't know if I would go as far as saying that. But and forgive me for someone saying I'm logic chopping. I might say it's inclusive of. So, I never knew you means you never loved me. Doesn't it? Doesn't mean love and knowledge here are are equivalent to each other, but they're inclusive. If you love God, God knows you, right? So there it, it's included and Jesus says I never knew you and so therefore the never must apply to the love as well if he never knew you you must have never loved him I think that's a, a, a safe conclusion but it's not the same thing as equivalent it's more like inclusive if if I hope I'm making sense either way I'm just going to the next question Michael S says Michael S were the biological ages of the patriarchs from Adam to Noah congruent with their chronological ages at 900 years old were they biologically ninety, and how did they spend in uh, how long did they spend in childhood? Do you think? So, Michael, this is a really interesting question, and I I can't honestly give you the answer. Let me explain it to anybody who doesn't understand from the brief question here what you're getting at. Um, you're like suggesting, hey, um, if 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 we take these long ages as literal in Genesis, and we have like say. Melchizedek who lived to be 969 I think is the date um, at what point in that 969 years of life was he an adult was he like in a, did did he hit puberty at like 12 or 13 and then in his 20s he was like us in his 20s and then like he kind of stayed 20ish or 30ish or was it his adulthood that was stretched out was he like a really old man for 300 years or or how did this work? And, and the answer to that I, I have is, I don't know. I find this topic uh, look, full of question marks for me. The, the whole, this whole stuff is full of question marks for me that I personally don't have answers to. Um, but there's one hint that we have in the genealogies, and that is the ages of the kids when they're born, uh, when, when they have kids, the ages of the parents when the children are born. Let's look at a few of the verses there and see if it gives you a clue. Um, Aside from the debates about the ages and the chronology and the age of all that, uh, we're we're asking Michael's question here. So when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, and that's Seth. Now, we know Adam and Eve had two kids at least before that, possibly a lot more. It's possibly that there was Adam or there was um, uh, Cain and Abel and then maybe lots of other kids. And then Cain killed Abel, and the next son born was Seth. That's also possible as well. So he was 130, though. That's pretty old. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Does that mean that Enosh was the firstborn of Seth? I don't know. I just know he had a kid named Enosh, and that's the one that the genealogy follows. Then um, Enosh, he lived 90 years. He fathered Kenan. That would imply you're living pretty old before you're having kids, if you take these as 90 years that we understand yours the same today and not some, some people think a, kind of a numbers game is happening here and you should divide it by six or something like that. Um, I won't get into all that. When Kenan lived 70 years, he had Mahalalel, Mahalalal. And, um, when he lived 65 years, he had Jared 65. So they are pretty old, but they're not all like that. So if you keep going down, let me see. Um... Enoch, 65 years. Methuselah, 187 years. Lamech. Then Lamech lived 182 years. And you'll have to pick up the genealogies more after that. Um, so, the, I, I think there's some other genealogies. Oh, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. So, let me just say this. At least the possibility is there that they were living longer before having their initial kids. The problems with this view are, one, we don't know if these kids that are being named were their firstborn. For instance, when Adam had Seth, we know for sure it was not his firstborn. And he's in the genealogy in a very similar way as all the other names are in the genealogy. So, we don't know that. Um, Then there's debates on whether these numbers are meant to be taken literally or not, which I'm not taking sides on because I haven't even gotten into those debates all right, number four, Joel S. says, was Molech child sacrifice similar to abortion in that a key purpose was to get rid of unwanted babies born, most often of sexual sin? Ezekiel 16, 20, and 21 clearly links the practice to fornication. I think that you answer- you may be answering your own question here, which is great. Uh, makes my job a lot easier. Ezekiel 16, verse 20 and 21. Let's look at those verses. So just so you guys know, anybody who hasn't heard this, Molech, there was a couple gods that they would offer their children to. And so one of them was a god with these giant hands and a statue with big hands, all bronze. And they would set a fire in the belly of the statue that would heat up until the hands were red hot. And they would, for you know, if you have kids listening, you're gonna to wanna to skip ahead or click pause for a bit here. Um, but they would take their, their, their babies, their living babies after birth, and place them on the burning hot hands of these false idols. And then this would murder, this would kill the children, and it was seen as an offering to the God. They called it passing their children through the fire. And it's a phrase you'll see in the scripture, pass, passing their kids through the fire. So here we have Ezekiel 16. That's the, the verse you brought up, Joel. And it says, And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children? Slaughtered my children. God's perspective on what they did when they killed their kids was they killed His kids, and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. Um. God sees does not. This is interesting. Another verse among many that shows that God does not see all sin is the same. He's like, hey, your 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 whorings, which is which. I think in Ezekiel is talking not so much about. Well, maybe he's talking about two things. Their their own fornications, but also the idolatry that they have going on. Because in Ezekiel a lot the issue of idolatry is spoken of as adultery, and so he speaks to Israel as that as doing that. Um, but there may be a parallel here that that what they did with these babies was the same as what Israel was doing. Right, you fornicated and sinned, and you produced these children you didn't want, and so they didn't have abortion where they could kill them. 10 minutes before they were born or three months before they were born or just a little bit earlier to to kid themselves into thinking it was just a clump of cells. Instead, they waited until the birth happened and then they offered it to these false gods. It's a nice keep the fornication going method. It's convenient for those purposes and God hates it. God absolutely hates it. Um, So your question is, does that make child sacrifice in the Old Testament similar to abortion today? And I think there's a similarity and there's a dissimilarity. The, The dissimilarity, Is that they're not doing it to Molech. They're not doing it to these idols. But there are two similarities. And one of them is they're doing it because of sin in many cases. These are unwanted children, perhaps in some some cases connected to fornication, selfishness, the pleasure seeking lifestyle of the parents. They don't want to sacrifice and have to take care of their kids. Um, And two, for prosperity you have to understand the reason why they sacrificed to Molech was thinking that by sacrificing these kids, they would get more prosperity in their lives. And this is exactly the case. Oh, I'm so thankful I killed my, my my child in the womb because now I'm able to be a lawyer. Now I can prosper. Now I'm able to be these other things. And yet at the same time, those same people will click like on a post that says that the mother is the most important job out there, not the lawyer, not the CEO, not the, not the Instagram influencer. Um the mother is, they'll, they'll, they'll do that, but then they'll, they'll kill their baby so they can pursue those other things. And so there's a similarity in that there. I think the either way, um, it's horribly immoral, horribly and inexcusably immoral. Uh, Matthew Entwistle has a question. He says, how fervently should I pray for the possibility of marriage being included in God's will for my life? It, it's always felt pointless to consider considering that it's likely God may not ever give it in my life. Um, Matthew, I feel uh, unqualified to tell you what your private prayer life and as you pour out your hearts before God, your heart before God, what you should or shouldn't pray for like marriage. I'm more interested in suggesting that as you pray about marriage, that you do so submitted to the will of God. Recognizing that it's not—it's a great desire in your life, but that it doesn't become an actual idol. You know, like if I don't get this, my whole life is unfulfilled. Lord, what was the purpose of me? That's where you're like, wait, why is my entire life wrapped up in this thing? It's a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, in general, I would say, marriage is a good thing to pray for because marriage is a good thing. You know, it's kind of like saying, should I stop praying for the salvation of my friends? Why? Why would you feel you should? Is there? A, but I feel like they'll never get saved. But like, why would you stop praying though? Like, why? Why not just keep praying and asking that God does a work in their lives? So I don't see why there be a rule for you to stop praying, except just to guard your heart and say, "I I want to say, Lord, you are still enough for me. You are still good enough for me, and I can still be content with the life that I have right now." Um, but you getting married, married is not only dependent upon whether God has somebody who He's going to put in your path and you're going to get married to. Uh, what we don't see in scripture is an entirely passive attitude towards marriage which is what i sort of felt like i should have in in my younger years and i slowly came to realize that i thought i think that was my baggage and it wasn't scripture people would describe for me um isaac and rebecca and how isaac was just sitting in a field waiting there and doing nothing he did nothing to seek out rebecca right and then here comes eliezer the servant of abraham with rebecca his new wife who he brought from the foreign land and brought over to them. And then it's like, boom, you know, wait till God brings you your Rebecca, Mike. Wait till God brings you your, your you just focus on these things. Don't even seek or look for a girl or, or anything like that. And as I started looking at that scripture in more context, I was like, wait a minute, that's only part of the story. Abraham literally was so focused on finding a wife for his kid that he sent his servant into a foreign land with a whole bunch of money and was like, Show them that we're wealthy, that we'll provide, that we'll take care of. Find the right girl. The servant like does a test on her about giving camels water and stuff to see if she has integrity and character. And then he barters with the family and then brings her and she agrees and goes and marries Isaac. Like, yeah, Isaac was sitting in the field because he literally had someone arranging his marriage for him. So he's sitting in the field. My point here is that you don't see examples in the scripture that are telling you that you can't seek a bride, that you can't go out and actively look for a wife and say, there's a pretty girl. There's a girl who seems like she's serious about the Lord, who seemed seem like we, we would have some things in common. And maybe we can go out and get some coffee or go out and, and watch Maybe watching a movie is kind of lame because you don't even talk, but <laughs> we can go out and do something together so that we can get to know each other better so that we can, or maybe you're serving in ministry, so you don't need to do that because they're right alongside you. You already have a way of getting to know them. It's okay to pursue somebody else. Just do it with integrity. Don't defraud them sexually. Don't try to get the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage and all that kind of stuff, but it's okay to pursue things. So I hope that some of that counsel helps you. I'm sharing that with you because those were things I didn't understand and no one ever explained it to me in a way that made sense. Not that it's their fault. Maybe it's my brain. Like, they would just be like, what's your problem there, Matt? you know? And I just like, well, tell me what my problem is. And they were like, I don't know, go away. So that, if someone had taken the time to explain it to me that way, I think it would have clicked. I think I would have understood it at a younger age and hopefully that does some benefit to you, Matthew. Jace Bauer says in Colossians 1.20, Paul says that Jesus reconciles all things to himself, both in heaven and on earth. What does it mean for Jesus to reconcile all things in heaven? Well, that's interesting. That's a really, really deep, deep question. Um, Let's see if I can get anywhere near an answer. Let's back up a little bit, and we'll get a bit more of the details. Uh, this is talking about Jesus here. I'll start in verse 16 of Colossians 1. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The purpose statement of creation made through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. The, the, the the exaltation of Jesus in Colossians one is amazing, right? Anyway, I'll just move on. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through him, To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the um, connect this to the Revelation, where um, no one in the Book of Revelation they're asking, who is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it? And this this process of breaking the seals and opening the scroll will begin God's both his judgment, right? condemnation of the wicked who are outside of christ and even the fallen angels in revelation right the the angels who fell uh, satan and his rebellious crowd they also get judged and then there's a new creation after the judgment comes a new creation a new heavens and a new earth are found not just earth earth and heaven we get these same two words earth and heaven in revelation and there's a recreation of all things heaven and earth So that now heaven, which had its rebellious element, Satan and his angels, and earth, which had its rebellious element, not only Satan and his angels active on earth, but human beings rebelling against God, are now a place where righteousness dwells in its entirety. I think that that's kind of what's being talked about here, that Jesus' death and resurrection saved humans by washing us in his blood, but also purchased the recreation of all things. As as part of his whole redemptive plan. So Jesus redeemed all things because it wasn't just humans that were affected by sin, it was heaven and earth itself also impacted. This is the why why else would a new heaven be made? So that's my perspective on that. Um yeah. Let's go to the next question. Number seven. This is from Monsum uh Monser M Monser this is from is Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 calling for all Christians to leave their respective countries to share the gospel or just some, how can I tell if I'm to leave my home country to share the gospel? And this is actually like, this is one of those questions that uh, I struggle with at a younger age. I remember Keith Green. Okay. Some of you guys, you know who Keith Green is. Um, and I actually really like Keith Green a lot. Um, just a real like on fire for Jesus really passionate young musician who died many years ago but but it was like it, part of that whole Jesus movement right and he has some really cool songs um, and and they're not like modern music at all but you guys might look it up Keith Green songs and uh, check it out so I'm just laughing because I know like my wife would hate that kind of music not like she's unspiritual it just, it's the music style she hates I'm so flexible to enjoy just about any kind of music just about that I just listen to lyrics mostly, um, and lyrics are what I care about. So that's what I like about Keith Green is his lyrics. Um, but, but if you're a music music person, not a lyric person, then uh, you might have other opinions. All right, so Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, Oh, by, oh, by the way, <laughs> Keith Green, the reason why I brought that up was because he told people that in this passage, Jesus commanded us to go, and unless you've been specifically told to stay where God has you, you were commanded to go and everybody should be a missionary and leave where they live and become a mission, missionary. That was m- m- at least my understanding from the things that Keith Green said. Like I said, he was super on fire, willing to, willing to do anything for Jesus. But did he understand this verse right? And I think the answer is going to be no. So let's read it again. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's stick on that verse, that part of verse 19 right there. Some people think the command is go, which means whatever nation you're currently in, you have to leave to a new nation. But wait, is that what Jesus, was Jesus's emphasis on Go. So, for instance, let's say you live in uh, Peru, and you read this verse, and you think to yourself, I have to go, so you move to LA, where, you know, I live in LA County, so you move to LA, and you're like, I'm going to be a missionary in LA, but I live in LA, and I read this verse, and I think, I have to go, so I move to Peru. Here's the problem with this equation. We will both be less effective missionaries outside of our language and country, than we are within our own language and country. The question is whether we're on a mission or not. That That's an issue. Am I, am I preaching the gospel to anybody in my life? That's a different issue. But if I'm preaching the gospel, I will have more impact when I know the language and I understand the people better, generally speaking. Is not, wherever you live, right? Monster M. Monster M. You guys have to look at it. It's hard to understand. I don't know what that word means. So, your question... Um, You know, what nation do you live in, right? Because you live in one of these, all the nations. That's it. Like you live in one of those nations. I think the emphasis here for all Christians in verse 19 is that we should be preaching the gospel to everybody. But why this verse was especially important for the first apostles who heard it is because up until verse 19, they had been told not to go to the Gentiles. This is super important. Read the gospel straight through and you will totally see this. They only go to Jews, and it's a rare exception when a Gentile or a centurion or somebody else gets help who's not Jewish. They go to Jews over and over again because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, wants to establish the theology of Christianity, wants to show God's fulfillment to, the, like, like Romans one says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? It was to the Jew first throughout most of the gospels. And then here at the end, Jesus is like, now that I've died and risen, now that the fullness of the gospel has been revealed, I want you to now take this message in its Jewish context assuring proper theology, fulfilling God's promises to his people. Now I want you to take this to all the world. The point of Jesus' statement is the gospel is for all people. It is not just for certain people. Take it to everyone. Take it everywhere. But where you're at right now without moving out of your country is one of those places where the gospel is supposed to be taken. Nothing wrong with you staying there and preaching to your local community. That's my understanding of it. All right. um, Let's go to the next question. This is for uh, number eight. Libby Neef says, I have some Christian friends who have gotten pregnant out of wedlock, and I feel like they expect you to react just the same as if they were married. What's the right response in this situation? Oh. Um, Libby, I, I... My heart goes out to you, Libby, because I feel like people will come up to you, and they will tell you I'm pregnant, and then they will stand in judgment over your facial expressions. <laughs> and maybe this is partly they, they don't want to feel guilt over the things they've done um so here's been my response when people have done that to me uh, for what it's worth okay this is not me quoting scripture to you but when somebody comes to me and tells me and this happened before like I'm pregnant and they have no, they're not married yet um I if I sense in them a genuine awareness that this was a, a sinful thing that they did, I still don't want to devalue this beautiful baby and this wonderful life. And so my rule is babies are always a good thing. <laughs> the baby part is a wonderful thing. Like you should have you should have been married. Yeah, but the baby part that's a wonderful thing. So I try to celebrate the baby because there's nothing wrong with the baby, right? There's and I'm not, I'm not going to put a shadow over the life of this baby and the existence of this baby because of the sin that that led to the child's conception, right? But the sin wasn't just the fornication it was the context there was no marriage there was no lifelong commitment I mean, and this is something that's very dominant in our culture even christians will think that it doesn't matter if you get married or not and i'm just like christians like you're not christian in this area of your life that's for sure and sexual immorality was a huge issue you know what was bigger than political commitments to the new testament church far bigger than political issues that we would face today and we would argue about today and divide over today Sexual immorality that was like a huge and massive and continual issue that they wherever the gospel went this issue of sexual immorality was meant to be ironclad in the heart of Christians. Let it not even be named among you. That being said if someone comes to you and they're like hey I've got a baby celebrate the baby. But this is probably a revelation to you if you didn't know they were sleeping with their their boyfriend or girlfriend boyfriend I should say Um, already now you know and now if they name the name of Christ. You should have a conversation with them, but I would try to separate it from the baby a little bit, right? Because you're not trying to cast a shadow on the baby. You're, you, you, you want, though, to, to reach them and let them realize, like, here's what Scripture says. Bring them Bible verses, man. Right? Let it not even be named among you. Abstain from sexual immorality. Do not defraud one another. This is the will of God for you that you abstain from sexual immorality, right? Th- these are important principles that need to be hammered, hammered, hammered in our churches more so than so many of the other issues that we're talking about, sexual morality, pornography, um, all of those types of compromises, need to. we need to wake up the conscience of our people on those issues and me going and telling you, hey, I was sleeping around with my girlfriend and now she's pregnant. Celebrate with me. Me doing that, hidden in that, can be a, an utter rejection of God's truth about sex and the beauty of it and the sacredness of it and so, yeah, it's going to be awkward. All right. Number nine, Tracy's Mo has a question. Good man, question mark. Jesus said there is none good but God. And there's a bunch of verses where Jesus says those types of things. But in Acts 11, 24, it talks about a good man. Also in Matthew twelve thirty five, Proverbs 13, 22, and Romans 5, 5. Okay, there's like a eight verses or nine verses that are in this in this question, you guys will be able to check after the stream the timestamps if you want to look at every verse that Tracy brings up, or or is it Mo? And it's Tracy's Mo. I don't. Or, or you're from a place in Missouri called Tracy's. I don't know. <laughs> Tracy's. Mo. Anyway, so um, I am a hundred percent on board with you. So this is where we have to understand that in Greek as well as in English, this is easy to understand because in English we do it these words have different meanings. Same word, good, can mean different things in different contexts. When a man goes to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, what good work or good teacher, what work must I do effectively to be good enough to earn heaven? Jesus challenges his very concept of good. And he says, no one is good, but God, because this is in relation to heaven, to earning heaven. When I am in relation to earning heaven, no one is good but God, right? Jesus, of course, is God with us, so he's good. He was without sin, but no one is good. We all fall short. In that sense, if someone's like, are you going to heaven? And you go, yes. And they go, and then they say, why are you going to heaven? You go, because I'm a good person. Now you got to go, wait, not not in that sense. You're not that kind of good. You were not good enough for heaven. All fall short of the glory of God. All are sinners in need of a savior. But then some people think that this means you can never call a human being good in any context. You know this person, you go to church with this person, you might be this person who someone someone comes up to you and they go, how are you doing? And you say, I'm doing good, I'm good. And they go, brother, no one is good but God. And I've had this happen many times. And I just started like, at first I started to adjust my language, like, oh, I won't say I'm doing good. And then I was like, no, this person's weird. Like they're being weird and they're making everybody feel weird and they think they're, fe- they're cute, but it's just awkward socially. And it's not biblical because this is a different context. I don't mean I'm good, morally perfect and worthy of heaven. I mean, I'm good, like I'm doing decently in life, or perhaps when I say that person's a good man, what I mean is by comparison to other human males, he's a pretty good guy but not comparison to God and earning heaven. This is what scripture does too. I'm not just playing games with words here. Scripture calls Joseph of Arimathea a good man. Does it mean he earned heaven? No, it's a different context, right? It's just using the same word to mean different thing in a different context. So he's good compared to other people. So like if you're comparing a human to other people, how are you doing? I'm doing fairly good. Compared to what? Like other people's lives? My own life on another day? Or how um, are you a good person? Well, like compared to normal people, he's like, you know, more reliable, a little more trustworthy, and a little bit more nice. So we'll call him good. But we don't mean that he's like holy and worthy of heaven. I think scripture makes those same distinctions. And so we should too. Uh, Number eight. 10 number 10 hello life says why do we differentiate between moral ceremony ceremonial and civil law so in the old testament law we'll say some part of it is oh well that's moral like do not kill that's moral do not murder actually um ceremonial is like oh well you know you you won't cut you won't cut the edges of your of your uh beards you know um to the jews that's a ceremonial thing or it's about the sacrifices you're going to offer turtle doves if you're poor you offer two turtle doves as part of your sacrifice Um, or then we have the civil law which will say like hey if a man steals another man's sheep he has to return two of them or however many it was i forget right now uh, to the man that's a civil law so you're asking why do we make those distinctions moral ceremonial civil meaning who decided the moral law was to be continued but not the other two types So, Hello Life, I had an interesting discussion recently with a guy who's named Joel Webin, a pastor who is a theonomist, who thinks that we are still under the Old Testament. Excuse me, I, I shouldn't word it that way. He thinks that the laws of the Old Testament should be enforced by all nations. And I have a very different view. So, when you said, who decided the moral law should be continued, but not the ceremonial and civil law, I actually don't hold that view then let me let me try to say this in a careful way, though, although there are some I know online who will rip my words out of context as much as humanly possible to make it look like I'm teaching things I don't teach. Um, I'll be talking about that soon. There's a guy, Doctrinal Watchdog, some anonymous person totally slandering me online recently. And then some other Christian YouTuber jumped on the boat and wouldn't listen to my corrections. I'm like, I don't believe that. Stop saying I believe things I don't believe. And he was just like, you're wrong. It's, <laughs> I'm going to do a video about this because it's it's confusing a lot of people. Um, as soon as I have a chance, I'm just really busy. So I don't think we are still under the moral law of the Old Testament because I don't think the moral law came only from the law. I think that when we say moral law, we we can use the term in different ways. So I could be using the term as a very broad umbrella sense of. Anything God requires morally of any human being. Now, some of that is written in the law of the Old Testament. Right? Like, don't murder. But don't murder didn't come from the Ten Commandments. Don't murder was a rule back when Cain killed Abel. Don't murder was already a policy back then. So when you see the law of the Old Testament, you have elements that are, let me put it this way, that are meant for Israel for a time. And then you have elements that reflect just God's laws and rules for all nations, for all people, for all time. We might call that moral law. So I wouldn't say that we're under the moral law of the Old Testament. And I'm going to say this, and I know some will, will not catch the nuance I'm trying to give here, but I'm going to try. We're not under the moral law of the Old Testament, as though the moral rule of not killing comes from the Ten Commandments to me. Rather, we're under God's moral law, as in He's holy and He requires good moral behavior of all people, whether they've ever heard of the law or not—the law of the Old Testament—and that moral truth is reflected in the Old Testament law. But that doesn't mean I'm under the Old Testament law. It's just that moral moral rules that God has for all people are sometimes found in the laws to Israel, because He also wants Israel to obey those things. This is a way of saying, when I see a moral truth in the Old Testament law. I can say that that's um, that's true for me as well, but not because it's written there. It's true for me. It's written there because it's true for all people of all time. Anyway, I, I, I know this is going to get lost on some people. Another way to put this is that we're not under the Ten Commandments as Christians, but you still can't murder. Or you still don't covet your 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 neighbor's stuff or wife. Don't worship other gods have no one before him, don't make idols. Those are things you're under, absolutely. Those are truths you're under, but not because they're in the Ten Commandments. They're in the Ten Commandments because they're truths God would have for anybody. Anyway, (laughs) I just know for some people that this this explanation is not gonna be enough. And I apologize, that's the best I could do just off the top of my head here at the moment. Um, And this is not an uncommon view, by the way. I'm not on my own here. Uh, Like John Piper, like here's like uber-Calvinist, John Piper would totally agree, so. Take that and stick it in your ear. Number, <laughs> I'm not talking to you, by the way. Hello, life. It was a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Talking to some, some other people. All right. Um, Turntable Gene Six says, "Hi, Mike. Sam here from Sydney, Australia. Really nice. I just immediately thought of Finding Nemo. Probably people do that to you a lot. Sorry, Sam. Uh, does First Samuel 28:19 disprove theolo- the theology? S- swinging around and not doing anything, but." you okay good thanks all right guys sorry we had the stream dip out for a second i look over and youtube's like now would be a good time to insert ads <laughs> youtube always thinks it's a good time to insert ads even when their streams don't work um okay so hades uh is where the the rich man goes and this is this is not gehenna or not hell right or the abyss like th- this is a different thing and i have a video on that where people anyway it, i should do a video explaining that in detail one of these days um but then uh, lazarus who is like the one who was basically saved right he goes to abraham's bosom this is a place of comfort and it it's i don't know if the place is meant to be called abraham's bosom or if it's more that literally abraham is there and abraham like basically greets him and comforts him so it's abraham like he, abraham gave me a big hug you know is what it's saying so he's in the place of comfort um, the idea is that before Christ died, these are the sections people went to before they died. That's the theological doctrine. It's not essential to Christian faith. Not all Christians hold to it. I, I lean on that view, though. Um, but then after Jesus died and rose, he took all those who were in Abraham's comfort and he took them up to with him to be with the Father. And so that's why when Paul's like, hey, if I die, I'll be with Christ. He wouldn't be in that waiting place. He'd be with Christ immediately. All that to say, here we are in the verse you asked about. The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. This is the right verse, right? Yeah. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Ah, okay. So this is in a larger section. I have dealt with this before. You guys can check it out if you go to BibleThinker.org and you use the, listen to my words carefully, clip search feature. There's two search features. Use the clip search feature and you type in like, samuel or something or witch because there's a witch in this passage and you can get answers to those questions but let me answer this specific question from Turn turntable turnable gene six also known as sam so saul goes and he inquires of a witch the witch does this sort of medium thing to try to bring up some spirit a spirit actually shows up it's samuel and Samuel speaks to Saul and rebukes him. The witch is shocked. She seems it seems to me She didn't expect this to happen. She was just uh, faking things or using demons She didn't expect the actual person to show up for real and so Samuel shows up and he's mad at Saul and Samuel shows up from where? Well from wherever he's been as a dead spirit as a disembodied spirit He's, he's been wherever there there has been and then he tells Saul. Yeah, I got a prophecy for you You want you want a prophecy? Here's a prophecy. You're, you're gonna die And then he uses the phrase, after he says, you're going to die, he says, you'll be with me. You'll be with me. You and your son shall be with me. Now, Samuel went back down. So the question is, does this disprove the idea of Abraham's bosom? And I think the answer is probably no, because the Hebrews would often use the term Sheol to refer to where everyone goes when they die. And that would refer to like this sort of Hades afterlife type location jesus may have offered more specificity by saying ah but the ones that are saved they go into this category and the ones that are unsaved go into this category one goes into comfort one goes into suffering while they wait on a final judgment so i think that um it doesn't disprove it because by that terminology of being with me could refer to going into the afterlife into the place of the dead right that's Terminology that would fit the theology of Abraham's bosom. It doesn't prove it either. This passage. It just doesn't refute it. It would work either way. All right. Let's go to the next one. This is Elijah B. Elijah Ba's a philosopher. All right. Um, oh, the colon's just missing. Okay. So Elijah B. is the guy asking the question. The question is: As a philosopher, I want to say that only God is or can possibly be perfect. How do I reconcile this with Matthew 5, 48? <clears throat> Jesus says here, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so Elijah B., as a philosopher, you know that arguments over definitions of words is where so many of the philosophical debates actually end. It's what it, how do we, but how do you define the word? How do you define the term? Here you have to look at how you're using the term perfect when you say only God is perfect. be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that word perfect isn't meant to include every possible thing. Yes going. <laughs> my assistant, I've told her to call me if the stream dies and apparently the stream's blinking in and out enough. That she's like, oh, I probably should call. And then she calls and it works again. So the trick, Sarah, is to call me whenever the stream starts to die. And then that makes it start working. That's the trick. Thank you, Sarah, for fixing the stream. So I think we're just looking at the word differently. Um, let's look at what Jesus is talking about. And does he mean you must be perfect in the all-inclusive and, on- and highest ontological fashion in which your Heavenly Father is perfect? Or does he mean something else? Well, we we'll just look at the verses. So you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet only your brothers what more are you doing than the others do not even the gentiles do the same you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect the perfection Jesus is asking here is not um, that you have, like, say, all knowledge, your perfect knowledge of all things. He's talking about behaving in ways that reflect the love and the goodness of God towards others. And that word perfect in the Greek is a lot more flexible than the word in English is. It can mean complete, it can mean mature, it can mean like full grown. He's saying that your character will have grown into more godlike character. Um, that's how I would I would, I would would just say this is not a philosophical statement about the nature of God, and that's why I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, number 13, Ellen Delgado says, is it okay to go to different churches while being under the same household? My family goes to a Pentecostal church, but I prefer a Baptist one. Ellen, uh, Eden, excuse me, uh, Eden or Eden? Eden? Eden probably. Why did I say, I don't know. Eden Delgado. Uh, I would say... Um, I wouldn't put any rule on anybody that they can't go to different churches in the same household. Um, you're still part of the same body of Christ. I guess the, the question I would have for you is this. Are you still able to fellowship together as a family? Or do you not only attend different churches, but even in your own gatherings, you wouldn't pray together, you wouldn't worship together, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have uniquely Christian behavior together? If that's going on, then there's a significant division that needs to be rectified. But... Um, sometimes different churches can be ways of dividing, but sometimes different churches can be ways of easing differences between us. Because you have a different, whether it's different desires about the church order and service, whether this is mature or not is beside the point. Um, whether it's different desires about those things, or different beliefs about some secondary issues in the Christian faith, when, when you have a church that you're part of, that you're plugged into, that is more in line with where your perspectives are on those things, it can make for easier and better fellowship in that environment. And so there can be a natural health of just letting people sort of sit at different lunch tables, you know, so to speak. And so I would, I would not make some giant proclamation, but if the different churches are there as a reflection of major division in the family and harm and bitterness going on in the the household, that's a different issue. But that's actually not about the church, is it? It's about the division. And that should be addressed. Lady Delhi says, <clears throat> how would you respond if someone you love said something like, I won't believe in any God unless he performs a supernatural miracle right in front of me? Um, I would, okay, so here's what I would hope to do, is I would hope to help them realize that they've created an artificial standard as a way of avoiding reasons to believe in God. Right? Like, I won't believe in, say, Bill Gates, unless Bill Gates pays my mortgage. There are other ways of proving God exists than him doing a supernatural miracle right in front of you, but you've decided that none of those matter. What I would want them to realize is what they've done is they've erected an artificial standard for proving God's existence as a way of ignoring tons of evidence and proof for God's existence. That in itself is, is a, flows from an incredible personal bias against all the evidence for God's existence. That means that there's a stubborn heart that's already pulling away from God, and that is a concern. So I would want them to know that. How do you communicate that to them? How do you tell them that? you won't believe unless he does a miracle right in front of you. So you don't think there's any evidence in the world that no matter how good it is, it doesn't matter. The evidence for the resurrection of Christ, the evidence for the miracles he's done in other people's lives, like he has to do a miracle right in front of you. And then the question I have is, would you really, and here's a lady delete, here's a question you might have for the person. Ask them, if you did become convinced, let's say a miracle happens in front of you. Would you not only just believe God exists, but would you actually follow Jesus in your life and love him and serve him and worship him? Find the answer to that question, and you'll find out what the real issue is. Because if their answer is no, if I, did, if I came to believe that it was all true, I don't know, maybe I'd think about it. I don't know if I'd really be able to. Then it's the rebellious heart that is the real issue between them and God. It's not the evidence. If their answer is absolutely I would, I would be wholeheartedly do it, then I would wanna work on changing their standard of evidence because an attitude that goes to God, I mean, look at Jesus, okay, when, when Jesus was doing miracles, he did many miracles, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had heard of his miracles, and they had good reason to believe he did miracles. In fact, they even at one point said, oh, he does it by the power of Satan, right, because they're trying to explain away these miraculous things Jesus is doing. But then, when they go, Do a miracle for us like you did in these other places. Jesus does nothing for them. And he says, the only sign they'll be given this generation is, and then he talks about his death and resurrection. Because when a stubborn heart turns to God and says, forget all your evidence and all your proof, I don't care. Dance for me, monkey. (laughs) When when that heart goes to God, they don't tend to get an answer. It's the heart that's the issue. And the humble heart receives Christ, and and the arrogant heart rejects Christ even when there is evidence. So... I don't want to deal with that. God give you wisdom to help the person to see it because they probably think they're being very smart. Cody Phillips has a question. It says, I was asked if Satan was omnipresent. I said no, but met some pushback. What are some good Bible verses to prove why Satan is not omnipresent and why this attribute is exclusive to God? Um, I guess... I think the burden of proof in this case is on the person who wants to prove that Satan is omnipresent or omni uh yeah omnipresent. So, omnipresence and I will have verses to prove he's not, but omnipresence is a big deal. You're saying he's transcendent beyond creation. He is at all he is in all places at all times. Imagine pr- saying God's omnipresent, but then I have no evidence for it. Like I have no verses to prove it. Like then you'd be like, well, you got to have verses to prove it. You can't just make doctrine up. That would be my answer to the person who says that Satan's omnipresent. Um, But there's other things too. So probably the verse that jumps out to me the most is when in revelation, Satan is cast down out of heaven. He's cast down out of heaven. If Satan's omnipresent, you can't cast him out of anywhere. He can't actually be cast out. So he's cast down out of heaven in the book of Revelation, so he's not present in heaven. And then Satan's thrown into the lake of fire at the end. And so you you can't throw him into—he's not confined to the lake of fire if he's omnipresent, but Revelation shows him being confined to that location— And so he's not omnipresent. These seem pretty obvious to me. Now, someone could counter and say, but Mike, doesn't the Bible say that God's presence left the temple? But if God's omnipresent, how could his presence leave the temple? But God, his awareness and his omnipresence was never cast out of or removed from the temple. It was a special, like, extra spiritual presence of God that came and left from the temple. But what we have in scripture is clear statements like in the Psalms. I go to heaven, you're there. I make my bed in the dust and you're there. I go down to to Hades, you're there. So wherever I go, Lord, your omnipresence is there. Even though your felt presence, your manifest presence that everybody's aware of, that's not there. That's the thing that moved, came and went from the temple and stuff. But God's omnipresence is always everywhere. Um, Satan, on the other hand, is actually confined to the lake of fire. Number sixteen, Rupani Salusalu says, Is there a point in someone's life when they can't repent? Like Esau. Thank you for your ministry. Let's look at this verse. It's in Hebrews um, about Esau. <clears throat> There's a warning. Um that we would not become like, there it is, like Esau, so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, that's what he wants, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, Esau seeks, to like undo the deal he made about the the meal and change the blessing that his it, his his dad had already given a blessing to the other son, and so he comes out after the fact and he's seeking for a way to like fix what harm he caused and the problems he now he was he was tricked like they were all tricked by Jacob, but before that trick he actually did sell the birthright, so he didn't really have a righteous grounds to try to say it belonged to him he sold it he gave it up for a bowl of food and so he didn't find a chance to repent because it was too late there was no chance to repent um the and I'm when I get to Hebrews I'm going to be doing eventually I'll do a, a whole study on the whole once saved always saved doctrine and whether or not because uh, I'm on the fence on the on the issue to be honest and I know that drives some people nuts Look, but I'm not the answer of all the theology of all Christians I just don't know some things and I'm honest about it um so your question is and when it relates to people is there a point where somebody can't repent i think it depends on what you mean by can't repent esau's not he didn't find a chance to repent it seems like it's connected not to his ability not to his willingness to repent but that the judgment so to speak had already come down there's the warning in hebrews here is um The offering of the gospel of Christ has been given, and if you're an unbeliever and you reject that offering, when judgment comes, you will not have another chance to repent. I I believe that this is the case. This is against universalism, right? That after you die, you're gonna have a chance to come to Christ. But that it will be, no, you have rejected the offer. You gave it up. And so there's no more opportunity to repent. That would be, it seems to be, the Esau connection. And that seems consistent with the rest of Hebrews when you read it in context. Like this is like, there's a dividing line this moment. If you, if you reject Christ, if you continue with an unbelieving, not just have at any point, but continue with an unbelieving heart, you eventually lose your opportunity for salvation. And it's upon death that ultimately that happens. Does that mean that a person gets to a point where they can't repent? Uh, I don't think so. I think that if you are alive, you're still alive. You have at any, po- at any point, you say, Lord, I repent. God's not like, nah, I don't want you anymore. I think that comes after death and not before. So I think the Esau example, my current understanding, and maybe this will change as I teach exhaustively through Hebrews next year, I'll start doing that. I'll readdress these issues and you can consider this my current thinking and you can have your own thinking on these issues, of course. Um, but what about somebody whose heart is so hard that that they, will, they simply will never repent, right? It's not that God says no. It's like if they did repent, he would say yes and receive them. It's rather their heart so hard and so darkened that they're just never, ever going to repent. And I think Pharaoh might be kind of an example of that. Um, And it does seem to be the case that there's a a situation where people get that way. That being said, let me read your question again and give you my short answer now um, for you guys to think about. Okay, I'm not dictating the theology of all Christianity to you guys, but we are thinking biblically about things, trying to work through things, at least understand the categories of them carefully. Is there a point in someone's life when, you, when they can't repent? Like Esau. Thank you for your ministry, Esau. Um, and you're welcome. Um, so, Rupeni, I think this. If there is such a point, let's say there is. How on earth do I or anybody else know somebody's really there? Because only the Lord knows and weighs the hearts. It, it, on a pragmatic level, it just doesn't matter. I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel. When you saw uh, Paul before he got saved, and he was persecuting Christians, and he was overseeing the killing of Stephen, and he was going around trying to get people to blaspheme Christ and interrogating Christians to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus, you would have thought, that man was around when Jesus was doing his miracles, that man was around when we were preaching the gospel, that man was right nearby when we had Pentecost and all the amazing wonders of of the work of the Spirit, and he rejects and persecutes Christians, surely his heart is so hard he will never get saved and sure enough that guy got saved who on earth are we to think that we can draw a line over anybody's heart including our own and think there is no hope for you i think that that is a huge mistake and there's too many biblical examples of hard-hearted people getting saved how do you know someone's heart's so hard they'll never repent they die that way like that's the only way i know number 17 Um, Anonymous question here. My mom likes to take communion over people. Okay. It's like a ritual she does as a way of blessing others Uh, when they need prayer, as if it does something extra special or gives her favor in prayers. It seems like this isn't right or biblical thoughts. Um, It sounds Catholic-ish, meaning not like this is something Catholic Catholicism teaches you to do, but they will do a mass service, which includes communion for people who have died as a way of shortening their time in purgatory is, is the, is the usually what people are going after in that moment, um, which purgatory is not biblical and shortening their time is the whole idea is weird, but, and and wrong on several levels, but the, this could be kind of borrowed from that. It's like, Oh, here's like a ritual I will do over them and it will somehow do something for them. I don't think there's any, there's, well, there's definitely no example in scripture of taking communion on behalf of someone else. There's no example of scripture of taking communion as a way of blessing or praying for somebody else. Communion is the thing that you do among Christians as a way of commemorating your, your faith and trust in Christ and fellowshipping with each other It's a glorious and wonderful thing. So I'd say what your mom doing, your mom is doing is not found in scripture. I don't think you can find scripture that suggests you you should do this. I'd like to know if anybody has verses they're going to use to support that. And it it's more like a I would call it a, a spiritual placebo. I do this and it feels very spiritual to me, and lots of people have spiritual placebos. They aren't necessarily destroying their faith with them, but they're placebos, like they're and then if it's a practice you're trying to encourage others to do, This is how you get churches doing weird things that aren't biblically grounded. It just, those things kind of snowball um, over time. So it's great that she's praying over them. That part is effective and powerful. The taking communion over people thing is just, I would call it a spiritual placebo, and it could lead into strange things. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully it just ends there. Uh, Yeah. So MED says in Daniel 12.2, what are they awakening from? Oh, interesting. Daniel 12.2, talking about this future in time. It says, uh, I'll start in Daniel 12, one." Speaking of prophetic future events, at that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there has never been since there was a nation till that time. This I would connect to the great tribulation and what Revelation speaks of and what jesus talks about in some of his like in times statements in the gospels but at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt this is one of the clearest old testament statements about eternal destinies of humankind after death so your question is what are they awakening from and the answer is while they're sleeping in the dust of the earth, that means they're dead. So it's a euphemism for those who have died. They are awakening or being resurrected. They're being brought back to life. They'll awake, some of them, to everlasting life. That is, they inherit eternal life. This is in the end of the book of Revelation. And some awaken or brought back up from this waiting time of being, of being dead. Um... To shame and everlasting contempt. So this is speaking of a of a second death. Revelation calls it the second death that they will experience after they finally are judged for their sins. So yeah, this is interesting because it's a super old Old Testament passage talking about the eternal judgment of others. And it connects deeply with Revelation and with the teachings of Jesus on end times as well. So yeah. Uh, Kayla Wayne, question number 19. Says, how do you discern what is vanity and what is not? Is wanting to fix appearances always vanity? Examples, covering scars with tattoos or having rhinoplasty to fix appearance after a broken nose. Um, Kayla, that's a tough question. And I don't know that I I know the answer. Here's my personal gut thought on this, right? Is that, um, and I'll give you some scripture that might support it. Is that when you are just... Trying to um, Take care of yourself in a healthy way like you want to be presentable you want to look decent That that is not in the realm in the realm of vanity That could also be just in the realm of being mature and being a a, a well-put-together individual who's taking care of your, your stuff But when you are trying to compete with others So that you can be competitive with them better looking than them more attractive, more and more and more attractive, when these are all your goals, I think that's moving into the realm of vanity or other desires that are about exalting self. So we have lots of options nowadays we never used to have. The, the surgery, surgery options, plastic surgery type options are really wide and vast. You know, um, This presents people with opportunities they never had before. Opportunities more opportunities for vanity. Than they never have before but also opportunities to fix things like a de- deviated septum Is that, that what's called when your nose is a little messed up? Um, is that vanity when you go to get that fixed and if they're like hey you got this weird like one side of Your nose is way bigger than the other like we can just kind of shave that down while we're in there Is that vanity if you do that? I'm not gonna say it automatically is I'm, I'm more interested in saying if you're just doing this to maintain versus you know, and look decent versus like trying to compete with others and draw attention to yourself and you're feeding this sort of um, weird body imagery where you have this um, what would what would we call it um, dysmorphia where you feel like you have to look reach these standards that are unreasonable that that's something you don't want to feed that that reaches into vanity and selfishness and it and it, it reaps a toll on you as well as on others. So, yeah, I don't know exactly, though, if someone comes to me and they say, yeah, I, um, I don't medically need this treatment, but I was thinking of getting it because it will improve my appearance and make me feel more comfortable. Like, at what point do I tell them, no, you shouldn't do that, that's vanity? It's easy to say it's all wrong, but it, it can't all be wrong. Like, if I have, like, one earlobe that was hanging down past my jaw, nobody would say I was vain if I went to the doctor and was like, can you just make my ear look normal so people stop getting distracted by it? But nor would I be doing it to be like, "Hey, everybody, look at me! I'm amazing," you know, or to compete with others for that matter. Like, to me, it's like, are, am I trying to reach normalcy, or am I trying to reach like top one percent of beauty in the world?" And you know, like, what is it that I'm trying to get out of this? Those are some of the questions I would ask. I'm sorry, I don't have better answers for you, Kayla. When in doubt, go without, and seek to honor the Lord. Be patient with that sort of stuff. Make sure you know what your motives are. And make sure that you don't have a bad view of your own body where you think that little tiny flaws are some giant big issue. Like we've all got weird things about us. And like I'm on camera in front of people all the time who can just see little weird things about me that, oh well. <laughs> you know, it helps me learn to be humble about those things and not care. Um, so yeah. We, we need the maturity to work through that stuff carefully. Anybody else who has advice for Kayla, put it in the comments below on vanity. How do you know the difference? All right, number twenty. Last question for today, I guess. Oh, we'll do it. We'll do a um, a, uh, a bonus question at the end here from Rick. All right, but first we have unschooling homesteader who says, "Why are women in the Bible referred to as virgins, but not men?" It makes sense. It makes it seem as though a man being sexually pure wasn't important, but only women. I know that's not true, but would love clarity. Um, So, women were referred to as virgins and men were not. Um, To my knowledge, there's no word like it's like Bethula or something like that in the Hebrew for the women, Um, or an Alma. And those both could mean virgin or young maiden depending on the context they're in and stuff. And yet for men, they were not generally referred to that way, to my knowledge. So I guess what we're doing, unschooling unschooling homesteader, is uh, what we're doing is we're trying to guess at why that is. Why is that? And I would offer like two considerations that might make you cautious of drawing too many conclusions based on it. Um, The first one is that You don't know why. (laughs) Uh, You don't know why. Like a young man was not called a virgin; a woman was. Maybe it was only because a a man can cannot prove that he's a virgin, but there are physiological pieces of evidence that show that a woman is. And so, a man being like, "I'm a virgin," it just like, "Yeah, but who? How does anybody even know that?" So maybe it was just simply that it was like, "How would we even know that you are?" And so we don't use that term to describe you because there's no guarantee of any kind. That wouldn't have anything to do with sexism. That would have to do with biology. And it wouldn't be um, suggesting that like the only value of women is them being a virgin or that men aren't supposed to be sexually pure. Um, Not only that, the Bible actually very strongly speaks of the sexual purity of men and women, both, and not just one. Sexual purity, hugely, hugely, hugely important. God constantly rebukes Israel for fornication he refuses to let the, the like sex s- slavery stuff happen, where you can just sleep with a slave. Um, the New Testament like makes such a massive issue of male and female um, sexual purity that that it would be it would be inconsistent with God for that to be the reason why. Okay, so that's one reason. Is we have other explanations that make more sense. We have scripture that kind of pushes back on the idea that men are allowed to just sleep with whoever they want, um, and women should be sexually pure. Um there are different connotations in, in between a man cheats versus a woman cheats different practical impacts on life for people at that time right because it's all immoral but um uh, but the legitimacy of the of the children and of those who are going to be born and stuff like that in their culture that really matters a lot and it's going to change if the woman cheats versus if the man cheats but there's one other consideration I want to add, which is this. The Bible doesn't make up its own language for things. The Bible uses the existing language of the people, right? Like Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. It's not actually making, it's not like the Bible authors go, when we speak of women, we shall use these words. Whenever you had a young unmarried woman in that, especially at the time in those languages, you called her a virgin. That's what everybody called her. So the Bible would actually be confusing to people if it didn't use the term virgin to discuss those women because they'd be like, Well, who are you talking about? Is she married or not? So the Bible's going to use the existing language to communicate. We shouldn't read the Bible as though it invented the language. There's exceptions to this rule because there's times where the Bible takes a known word and it uses it in a special way. Paul does this with like the word agape. He's not the only person ever used the word agape to refer to love or something like that. But he does define it differently. But this is easy to spot when the Bible uses words in special ways because it will usually give you a definition of the word at that moment. It will use it with context that shows you there's deep meaning in this word. And we want to say something here, the authors of scripture, that our language normally doesn't say. So we're going to use the word and we're going to show you that we mean more by it than that. But those situations are different than the situation with uh, the virgins. All right, we'll go to the bonus question. This comes from Rick, soldier of God, who asks me the easiest question I've received in a long time. How do you like your steak cooked? (laughs) ah finally an easy question one that doesn't make my head hurt um i like it cooked medium rare i'm a medium rare guy and i feel like i lose a lot of the enjoyment of the steak if it's especially if it's well done i'll do medium rare i can handle rare um but not not well done medium well i'll tolerate but yeah i'm definitely a medium rare guy Mm, you make me feel hungry i want a steak now So guys, thank you so much. Listen, I am going to be doing a video to respond to someone called Doctrinal Watchdog, who's like, I don't know who this anonymous person is, is who's been systematically taking clips of me out of context to try to make people think I teach and believe things I don't teach and I don't believe. I tried to correct the person, they ignored my corrections for the most part. Um, Then the Bible Thumping Wingnut News Network, another Christian YouTube channel, um, who I consider brothers in Christ, they did this whole video of like how I I slandered John MacArthur and I'm I'm uh, basically a bunch of things that I don't believe. I tried to correct them. They pinned, they left my comments up, but they left the video up that says things about me that aren't true. I'm going to be responding to all this here as soon as I can pull it together. I, I find this to be an annoying distraction from my work on women in ministry, which is what I'm absorbing every waking moment with right now, trying to get ready for the next study. Um, and that's my primary focus, but I'll do a short video. Well, it won't be short, but I'll try to spend as little time on it as I can preparing it to deal with these supposed things, because you know what, this is exactly how discernment ministry is not supposed to be run where you look for any quote you can find out of of any context and try to rip and destroy people's reputations because you think you've found the, the wolf in sheep's clothing and all this other kind of stuff. Um, so I'm going to be putting up a video responding to that stuff, um, not because I think it'll fix Doctrinal Watchdog or even Tim Hurd, who, a Bible thinking, thumping wingnut. I asked if he would talk to me. I was like, can we get, on f- get get in a conversation? Can you reach? And he would not even reply to me. He would just cold shoulder, wouldn't even talk to me um, personally in, in private messenger because I, I, we have each other on messenger. Just ignored me. So I will do it, though. For a large number of people out there who are legitimately like, wait, Mike teaches that? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's so sad. Mike's teaching those things. And I'm like, dude, I don't teach that stuff. This is clips out of context. So I will show all that to you guys coming up soon. I hate to be distracted by the drama. That is all. Thank you so much for joining. I will see you guys um, soon within a few days. Maybe, Maybe it'll come real soon. A video. I'll respond to these claims about me. And other than that... The next Women in Ministry video is not until Monday the 26th, the 26th, and I'm going to do head coverings. The head coverings video is finally going to be done, and I hope and pray that it blesses you guys and gives you great wisdom and answers the debates and issues that you've got rattling around on your head on First Corinthians 11 and the topic of head coverings and male-female relationships as it relates to Women in Ministry. See you then. Oh, let's pray. Um, Father, we ask for unity in the body of Christ. That's the big thing. We pray that you'd help us to be loving and unify with those around us in our lives who are Christians, that we could be gracious and forgiving to them, that we could see them through the the same grace that we want you to look at us with, Lord, that we would extend the grace of Christ from us to others. We pray for wisdom and um, real discernment in the way we interact with each other and all these things. and. We just ask for unity in the body. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.